Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, if you were paying attention, you heard the gospel text not once, but twice, because the gospel text for today, the great commandment, the greatest commandment, is so important that it is included in our liturgy so that whenever we gather for worship, we hear it again. If Jesus says that this great commandment, the greatest commandment, is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, and then goes on to say in the Gospel of John that the mark of the Christian is love, that by this all people will know you are my disciples by how you love, it's probably a good question to ask, how are we doing with that? Well, it turns out that the answer to that question depends on who you ask. Recently, there was a survey done asking several thousand people for the first three words that came to mind to describe Christians. And they also asked, are you a Christian or are you not a Christian? So for those who identified themselves as Christians, the answer for those three words describing Christians sounds pretty good. Loving, compassionate, respectful. We can all feel good about that, right? Sounds good. However, there was a problem because when that same question was posed to people who were not Christians, the three words were judgmental, hypocritical, and self-righteous. The surveyors found that although non-Christians had very negative views about Christians in general, they actually had very positive views about Jesus. However, for their perception of Christians, most of them associated Christians with political agendas and bigotry. But interestingly, of those surveyed, only 12% said they actually knew someone who was a practicing Christian. So one of the things that this tells us is that there is significant work for us to do. And part of the reason this is so important is that out of everything in the entire Bible, Jesus tells us in today's gospel that this is the greatest commandment. If it is the greatest commandment from God and we are seeking to follow God, then it must be something that we pay close attention to. It is simply imperative that we consider it carefully and determine how to live our lives in obedience to this command. However, if you are like me, this is a commandment that is sort of hiding in plain sight. We hear it so much and so often that it just goes right over our heads and we don't actually think about what it might live to what it might mean to live in such a way that we live out this commandment. So this morning, we're going to focus in on this great commandment. We're going to look at where it came from. We're going to look at what does it actually mean, and we're going to talk a little bit about why it matters so much. So first, a little bit of context. You'll remember from last week, we heard the story of Jesus 
debating with the Pharisees about the coin and rendering to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And this is part of that whole section in the gospel where Jesus is being tested by the Pharisees. And this is not a nice kind of testing. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to say something that they can say is blasphemous so that they can arrest him. So they are not disinterested parties. And these questions are traps for Jesus. So that brings us to where does Jesus's answer come from? And part of the thing that is important about this is that the way that this question is a trap is because in the Jewish understanding, there were 613 laws, and it was incumbent upon every good Jew to obey all 613 of them. And if you choose one or two and say those are most important, you have automatically said the others matter less. And if Jesus had done that, they would have pounced on him. So you think, well, he can't do that. Maybe the Ten Commandments, which is the next important thing in Judaism, but looking at the Ten Commandments, trying to figure out which of those is most important and what you can leave out, that doesn't work out very well either. So Jesus does something that is brilliant. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is a chapter I would commend to you to read, and says that the greatest command is what the Israelites would have known as the Shema. It is, in Hebrew, something that starts with the words Shema Israel, And we know it as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Every good Jew would have recited and prayed that twice every day. And even today, many devout Jews still pray this twice a day. If you go to the home of a Jewish family in Charleston, you will very often find on the front door frame a small angled metal bracket that is called a mezuzah. And inside that little bracket will be a tiny little scroll that has this verse written on it in Hebrew. It is the foundation of the Jewish faith. And Jew Jesus adds to that, Leviticus 19:18, love your neighbor as yourself. And as this command gets unpacked, it becomes clear that it's not just your Jewish neighbor, it is any neighbor, the sojourner that is in your midst. You are to love others as you love yourself. Both of these notions are deeply rooted in the scriptures, both of the Old and New Testament. And it was an answer that the Pharisees were absolutely unable to refute because Jesus is right. This is what our whole faith points to, and that is why Jesus says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, the whole revelation of Scripture depends on understanding these two verses. These are the verses that are the lens through which we look at what it means to follow God. So that brings us to a next question. What do these verses actually mean? And I would submit that this is something that is not as easy as it looks to figure out because we live in a culture that is profoundly confused about the word love. We think that love is sentiment and feelings, but that is not 
what the biblical understanding is. The word that Jesus uses here in the Greek is agape, and that is love that is a choice, not a feeling. It is an act of will based in the will and choice of the lover and not dependent on the merit of the one who is loved. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. But if we misunderstand love, we will misunderstand what these commandments actually mean. So I would suggest to you, this is a definition that might be more helpful. To love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength is to make him the top priority and indeed the framework for all of our life and every decision. It means that we are to delight in who God is and the goodness and truth and beauty that are found in that eternal life and love that is in the Trinity and that we are to seek to obey his commands and to live in the present reality of the kingdom of God. To love our neighbors as ourselves means to actually do what the golden rule says. As you wish that men would do to you, so do to them, as well as what we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We are to seek the good of others as much, indeed even more, as we seek our own good. Interestingly, this command to love our neighbor as ourselves is the one that Jesus cites most often in the New Testament. But Jesus takes it a step further, and indeed this is one of the unique things in the Christian faith that Jesus calls us in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have heard it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now this is the only faith, Christianity, in the world that commands to love your enemies. And boy, are we ever in a place where we need to hear that as we live in a culture that is full of polarization and hate and line drawing. It is radically countercultural to love in this way. But that is exactly the point because that is why we are supposed to shine like the sun if we know Jesus because we are different. We are to have a servant heart, to not be caught up in the narcissism of our culture of wanting what we want when we want it, but seeking to serve others and think about their needs. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is not a dry, mean kind of obedience or love, but it's a kind of love that should overflow in joy, that should be visible to people around us. Our love for God and love for neighbors should change our demeanor so that we are full of that joy and that love flows out of us. The great Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle uh, has something important to say about how we can actually do this. He says, how shall we obtain this love toward God? It is not a natural feeling. We are born in sin, and as sinners, we are afraid of God. How then can we love him? We can never really love God until we are at peace with him through Jesus Christ. When we feel and know our sins are forgiven and we are ourselves reconciled to our maker, then and not until then, we shall love him and have that spirit of adoption. Faith in Christ is the true spring of love toward God. 
Those who love most are those who understand how much they have been forgiven. And how shall we obtain this love toward our neighbor? This is also not a natural feeling. We are born selfish, hateful, and hating one another. We shall never love our fellow man aright until our hearts are changed by the Holy Ghost. We must be born again. We must put off the old man and put on the new and receive the mind that was in Christ Jesus. Then and not until then, our cold hearts will begin to know true godlike love toward all. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So we have to be transformed to love in this way. It is not something we can do in our own strength. There's a marvelous section in that great book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, where he engages this idea of Christian love. Lewis says, love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It is a state not of the feelings, but of the will. That state of the will which we have naturally about ourselves and must learn to have about other people. Our love for ourselves does not mean that we always like ourselves. It means that we wish our own good. In the same way, Christian love for our neighbors is quite a different thing from liking or affection. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time wondering and bothering about whether you really love your neighbor. Act as though you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love that person. So this definition of love needs to be reformed from the cultural definition. But even if we do that, we still have to think about why does this matter and why does it matter so much today? And part of the reason for that is that through the centuries, people have had many different marks to show that they were Christians. In the early days, it might be making the sign of the fish in the sand. In the medieval period, it might have been having a certain type of haircut or vestment. In the modern period, it might have been wearing a particular lapel pin or a certain type of chain around our necks. But there's nothing wrong with all these things, but the important thing, the mark that Jesus says matters is love, that love is the distinguishing mark of the Christian. St. Paul says this as well, that it is not enough to have all of these gifts of the Spirit. If we have love, we are like a clanging cymbal. So Jesus tells us, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that means we have a problem because the perception from that survey, and sadly perhaps the reality, is that many Christians do not bear this mark. You can search their lives and probably our lives, at least some of the time, in vain for love. It is really unfortunate, but in our culture today, how often are we most known for what we are against rather than what we are for? And more importantly, what we are against rather than who we are for. Our culture misunderstands the definition of love as sentiment, thinking that love actually means indiscriminate and total affirmation of the feelings of another person. But that could not be further from biblical agape love, which is not a feeling, but a choice of the will. 
One of the beautiful things about agape love is it says, come as you are, come as you are and enter in and receive this love for you that is more than you could ever ask or imagine. Come as you are, but I love you so much that I will not be content to leave you as you are, but I will help to mold you more and more into my image, says Jesus. And this brings us to one of the things that is difficult because one of the things that we often fail to do in the Christian faith today is to distinguish the gospel from moralism. The great Presbyterian preacher Tim Keller says this, in a relativistic culture, the church will have to clearly declare that there are moral absolutes, which will be unpopular to say the least. It will be called domineering and abusive, but the church must not flinch. Yet, there is danger on the other side too, where the commandment to love is forgotten and all that is left is self-righteousness. The great writer and theologian Francis Schaeffer says the Christian really has a double task. He has to practice both God's holiness and God's love. Both God's holiness and God's love. Not his holiness without his love, that is only harshness. Not his love without his holiness, that is only compromise. We must always show the simultaneous balance of the holiness of God with the love of God. Now this is not an easy thing to do. And I think many of us retreat into the theology that was so beautifully put by Charles Schultz in the Peanuts comic strip. There is a wonderful comic where Lucy is berating Linus, which is not unusual, and basically telling Linus that these ideas that Linus has about what he wants to do with his life are not going to work. For example, Linus's idea that he might like to be a doctor. And Lucy says, you can't do that. You don't love humanity. And Linus looks at her and, she sa and says to her, I do love humanity. It's just people I can't stand. But the problem for many of us is that if we look in the mirror, we've got a little bit of that too. It's easy to look at the world and have an attitude of vague benevolence to those people out there. But unfortunately for us, when we look at people or groups of people that don't agree with us, our tendency is much more likely to say, if we could just get rid of people like that, this world would be a better place. And you can fill that in with whatever label you want, whether it's a political party or some version of sin or belief or whatever it might be. But the problem for most of us is that that statistic early on is increasingly true. Remember that people who were not Christians in the survey, only 12% of them actually knew someone who was a practicing Christian. Now, I will say this was done in the Northeast, so it might be a little better down here, but not much. And the problem for that is that we often have what I would call salt shaker syndrome. Jesus called us to be the salt of the earth, which means we are out of the salt shaker and being spread through the culture to help bring it toward God. But it's much more comfortable to stay in the salt shaker with the rest of the salt. Now, if you think that we live in a Christian culture, I would just like to submit to you the example of Jeopardy and rest my case. And in case you missed it, uh, a couple of weeks ago 
on Jeopardy, which is people who are really smart and have to go through all kinds of hoops to get there, they had a category of question, what's the next line? And they had the three contestants up there, and the question is asked, what's the next line after our Father who art in heaven? And you would have thought all three contestants would immediately have jumped to the buzzer and yelled out, hallowed be thy name. But you would be wrong. There was deafening silence. Not one of them knew the next line. Now that ought to shock us into awareness of how important it is that we engage with this culture. We must get out of our salt shaker and invest in building relationship to show God's love, to engage and welcome others and invite them to come and see as Jesus did. That doesn't mean we have to compromise anything. We just need to show the kind of love that Jesus did and follow his example where he got up every morning and walked out into this broken world and encountered with love every single person that he met speaking the truth to them in love. So there are several implications of this that I would suggest for us this morning. First, and perhaps most difficult, we must take our eyes off of ourselves and our problems and all the things that we would like to complain about, rejecting the pride and narcissism that are all around us, and we must proactively focus instead on God and on his word and on the others that God places around us. Second, we have to reject feelings as the only basis for reality and loving relationships. Third, we need to embrace a full and biblical understanding of the golden rule, not just saying, that's nice, but actually going out and proactively seeking to love and do good and to serve others, even those with whom we disagree. And lastly, we need to focus daily on Jesus' words about the mark of the Christian. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It reminds me of a wonderful story that is told about a man named Langdon Gilkey who was in a concentration camp run by the Japanese in China in World War II. And it was an awful concentration camp, and Gilkey had drifted far away from his Christian faith that he had as a child and was a hard-boiled atheist. And he was in this concentration camp with a lot of missionaries, which was for him fate worse than death. But one of the things that he noticed is that in this concentration camp that is full of suffering and all kinds of different people, missionaries, Chinese natives, that most of the missionaries pulled back into a little group, looked down on the others, were prideful, and only took care of others that were like them, except for one. There was one person in this internment camp that went out of his way to love and serve every person there, regardless of race or creed or whatever, to suffer with them, to experience joy with them, to minister to their needs, to give away his food to them, and that person was Eric Little. Many of you will know Eric Little's name from the 1924 Olympics where he was a champion and the movie Chariots of Fire was done about him. And he spent the rest of his life as a missionary in China. And then he was put in this concentration camp 
And as if that were not bad enough, he was diagnosed with cancer. But he lived the last part of his life before dying of cancer in that camp, pouring out the love of Jesus Christ. Gilkey watched this, and he concluded that religion and moralism do not produce love, but seem to make self-centeredness worse, especially when they lead, as they inevitably do, to pride in one's own moral accomplishments. Little, however, was totally different. He believed the gospel of sheer grace through Jesus Christ that he was unworthy of but needed to share with everyone else. Because of Little's example, Gilkey gave his life to Jesus. It shows us the power of living out what Jesus tells us to do. As we close this morning, I'd like us to think about the words of a song that we're going to sing later in the service today that I would submit to you are our marching orders to live out this command. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain, an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor, and with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor, and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. O oh Lord Jesus, help us love as you command. Amen.